Let me pray for us as we start, and then we're going to go into Mark chapter 14 and talk about the subject of prayer this morning. Let's pray together. Father, I know we can do a lot of different things when we come together at a church service like this. We sing together, we have conversations, we study your word. God, we're thankful for all of those, and we're reminded that, that when you call people together, you call us to pray. And Father, I pray this morning that if there are people in the room who are hurting, maybe they have a lot of frustration in their lives, maybe they have broken relationships that have just haunted them this week in certain ways, give them the freedom this morning to pray. God, I pray that families would spend time in prayer after the service, just moms and dads gathered around their kids, praying for them, encouraging them. God, we see how Jesus prayed in these verses. We want to do the same thing. And God, show us what that looks like. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in his recent book on prayer, uh, a pastor and author named Tyler Staten tells the story of a lady named Jenna who came to his office for some pastoral counseling and, and some things that she was struggling with. Jenna was an incredibly spiritual woman. She was mature in her faith, and she was a woman of prayer. Jenna talks about how early in her marriage, they didn't have a lot of money, and they prayed that God would provide a job, and God would provide food, and God miraculously provided those things for them, even to the point of checks being slipped anonymously under their door to provide for rent, and just some incredible things they experienced. They were out ministering one time, and they didn't have a lot of food, but they were receiving food and didn't have a microwave to be able to heat up their food, and they were out doing ministry among drug addicts and prostitutes in a really bad part of town, and someone pulled up to that ministry, opened the trunk, and of all the things that could have been in the trunk, Jenna said there was a microwave in there, and they said, does anybody need a microwave? And so they were able to take that home. So they go through that experience of, of seeing how God answered their prayers, but when Jenna came to Tyler's office, he talks about what her frustration was, and here was her frustration, here was her prayer. God, I asked you for a microwave once, and you gave it to me within 48 hours, but I've asked you for a baby every day for years, and all I get is silence. Why are you so in touch with the trivial needs of my life, and so distant for my deepest desires. I've asked you for a microwave, and you gave it to me within 48 hours. I asked you for a baby, and it feels like silence. Tyler uses that story in his book to begin to pull at some of those really hard questions of prayer. If God is loving, and God is good, and God is powerful, why do we pray desperately for things and not see the answers that we want? Why do we call out to God for prayers of healing and saving marriages and saving families? and Why do we call out for these things to a good and loving God? And sometimes it feels like we're just yelling into the darkness, crying into the darkness. We don't receive the answers that we would imagine. Or, as somebody said to me this week, sometimes God answers our prayers and we're more frustrated by the answer we get than by even just silence. It's like, no, that's, that's not what I expected. That's not what I wanted. How do we deal with this idea of a good and loving and wise and powerful God and at the same time our deepest prayers and our deepest desires are not always answered how do we respond to that well this morning we follow Jesus into the garden of Gethsemane we follow Jesus into the garden of Gethsemane and we see what it looks like to pray now as we do this I want you to know 
as we follow Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane today, we're going to talk about how the disciples, they struggle in this story. Like, they struggle to understand what's going on. And so this story that we're going to read this morning is designed to point us to the cross. When we come away this morning, our main focus is to see how this story leads us to the cross, how Jesus goes to the cross for us. At the same time, this story is a huge help when you are so frustrated by praying. When you've been praying about something for weeks and months and years and you just feel like there's silence, there's unanswered prayer, you're not making any progress, this story is such a help. And so I want you to see the pattern of prayer during times like this. Mark chapter 14, let's start in verse 26. Coming right off of what we looked at last week, Mark 14, 26, it says, And when they had sung a hymn, hey, we just did that, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Verse 26, when Jesus and his disciples, they'd had the Last Supper together, they'd been together, Jesus tells them, this is my body, this is my blood given for you, one of you is going to betray me, so they have this time together, then they go out to the Mount of Olives. Now the Mount of Olives is located on the east side of Jerusalem, it's located east of the temple, uh, just beyond this valley. So let me give you a way to think about this in Oklahoma City. So if you imagine that I-35 is this terrible valley that separates Jerusalem from, from the east side, which we can imagine I-35 being a terrible valley that you can never get out of. Um, so you're here, on the west side is Jerusalem and the temple, and you know that huge trash pile that's on I-240 over there that every little kid grows up thinking, one day I'm going to ski down that. And you're like, no, sorry, you're never going to ski down that. Um, so if you orient yourself, that trash pile that's on I-240, that's generally speaking where the Mount of Olives would be located in reference to where Jerusalem and the temple was located. So it was on the other side of this valley. When you hear the Mount of Olives in this story, all of your Old Testament sirens start to go off here because they're picking up these ideas from the Old Testament, especially Zechariah chapter 14 and Ezekiel chapter 11 because when God brought his salvation at the end of times, it was going to be oriented toward Mount, the, the Mount of Olives. And so the fact that Jesus is moving out there and he's been ministering in this area tells us all of God's promises from the Old Testament they're about to come to fulfillment. So, verse 27. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written. Again, he goes back to Zechariah. So Mount of Olives just took us to Zechariah chapter 14. This is going to take us to Zechariah 13. He says, When we go out here, you will all fall away, because the scriptures say, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Okay, there's a balance here that's going to be really important in these verses. There's a balance of we're about to go something through something hard, and you're going to struggle, and on the other side of that struggle, there's hope. Okay, so make sure you hold on to both of those. There's struggle and suffering and betrayal that's going to happen, but Jesus already says, after I am raised up, I'm going to go before you into Galilee. There's going to be life. There's going to be a light at the end of this tunnel. We have something to look forward to. So suffering and then glory. Difficulty and then the mission in, uh, continues. There's hope beyond this. Verse 28, or verse 29. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, 
This very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same thing. Now we're going to come back after spring break, and we're going to talk some more about Peter and this betrayal and, and what's involved. But we see here Peter's deep loyalty to Jesus, that he says, I'm going to be with you, I'm going to stay with you. But we also see Peter's pride and his foolishness and uh, how he speaks first and thinks later. And some of you are like, yeah, I love Peter for that reason. Like, we're experts at speaking first and thinking later, and sometimes our, our mouth gets a little bit in front of us. And so you see, you see Peter's pride here. This is one of the reasons that I think First Peter in your Bible, when you get toward the end of the Bible and you get to First Peter, this is the reason I think First Peter deals so much with the topic of humility because Peter himself went through this. Peter himself dealt with so much pride. And so when he writes his letter at the end of the New Testament, he's dealing with this idea of humility that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Amanda and I have talked about this a lot in, in our marriage uh, from the very early days of marriage, especially because of a person that was a mentor to her and someone she learned from. But it is a good spiritual lesson to never say, I'm above that, or I would never do that, or I would never go down that road. The moment you say, I'm above that, or that would never happen to me, or I would never go down that road, be very careful, <laughs> because there's a good chance you're going to be tempted to go down that exact road. Um, I'll just be super straightforward with you, because I think we need to together. Uh, we're in a day and age, well, it didn't just start in 2023, it's been going for a long time, but... Uh, where pastors have made some horrible decisions when it comes to toxic leadership, when it comes to getting involved in relationships that, that are outside of marriage, outside of God's will. And if I look at that and ever say, oh, that would never happen to me, I, I'm above that, it's not the way we operate. Like, that's a dangerous place to be in. And so we stay humbly before the Lord, God, I need you. We're going to face these difficulties. We're going we're to face these temptations. We never want to say, that would never happen to me. I'm above that. Because we're always recognizing our need for Jesus in those times. And we're going to come back around to that phrase, our need for the Lord, our need for his cross, our need for, uh, for his strength to guide us through these times. Verse 32. So finally, verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, this place of the olive press. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. You can see a picture up there of the Garden of Gethsemane as it stands now with these beautiful old trees that, that are there. They're amazing to go in this area and, and see these trees that would have been around this beautiful garden area. And we know it was common for Jesus to, to get away and pray. And his disciples, he would often leave them in a particular area and go away for times of prayer. So, you know, when you have little kids and you just say, hey, could you just sit here for just a few minutes while I go over here and do something? Uh, there, there's two dangers. Well, there's lots of dangers, actually. <laughs> but one is they wander away. Like, that's always, that's always a danger. And then, you know, sometimes silence is worse than screaming. Like, when you're not around your kids and they're in a different room and things are going on, it's one thing if they're screaming at each other because you're like, okay, well, I know they're still there. Silence is terrifying in those situations because you think, oh man, somebody's getting into trouble. Like there's something happening here. Well, Jesus, he leaves his disciples in a particular area and he finds silence, but not because they're getting in trouble because they ultimately fall, fall asleep. Verse 32, verse 33, what does he do? He took with him 
when he said to his disciples, sit here, I'm going to go away and pray, he took with him Peter and James and John, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled, and he said, my soul is sorrowful even to the point of death. Now, why does he take these particular disciples with him? So he told his disciples, sit here, I'm going to go away for a time of prayer, but then he says, you, you, and you, come with me. Why does he pick those three? A couple of reasons. Those three have been with him in some of the most important, impactful moments of his ministry so far. They were the three that went into the house when he raised the little girl from the dead. So they've had a front row seat to Jesus' power to overcome death. They're also the three that get to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. So when the voice speaks from heaven and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, they were the three that got to be a part of that. We also know that these are the three that earlier said, hey, if other people struggle, we're going to be right there with you. We'll never abandon you. And it's almost like Jesus saying, okay, you said you would be with me. Prove it. <laughs> Let's go. You said you were going to endure this cup. You were going to endure this suffering. Now it's time to find out if you're actually going to do that. So he calls them out, and he says, I am greatly distressed and troubled. He calls them to watch, which is the key word that we looked at in Mark 13. Pay attention. Stay awake. Don't miss this. What happens? Verse 35. Going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, verse 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Teenagers, I'll tell you this again in a few minutes. This is the verse this week that I would tell you to screenshot and put on your phone as a... As a something to look at. Like, this is the verse that if you can keep this verse in front of you, it will provide such a guidance for how we pray. Verse 36, screenshot this, copy it, hold on to it, put it somewhere that you can see it. This is the verse that we see. We're going to come back around here in a few minutes because this becomes the pathway for how you pray during seasons of silence and, and pain in your life. What's going on in this verse? One of the commentators, uh, one of the people that's talked about this verse, he re recently wrote a book on the relationship between jazz music and the gospel, which is a fascinating topic, the, the connections between jazz music and the gospel. And one of the things he says is that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is the greatest blues singer of all time. And what he means in that way is not a disrespectful thing, but it, the blues in the sense of getting in touch with the intensity and the suffering and the pain of life in this world, and yet there's always a current of hope. There's always a current of peace. There's always something that draws you ahead. And so in this situation, Jesus is encountering the very worst of pain and brokenness and evil in the world, and yet there's always this idea that pushes him forward. There's always this strand of hope that runs through it. This language here about Abba, Father. Think about how the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer starts. Our Father who art in heaven. Jesus is drawing on this pattern of prayer that he would have had throughout his life and his ministry. Now that language, Abba, Father, I want to be really careful here, okay? Do not mean any respect by this. But sometimes over the years, that term Abba, people will pray using the word Daddy. Um, that's kind of a personality thing. Some people that kind of rubs the wrong way. Some people really, really connect well with that language, that calling out to, to God using the English term Daddy. There was, several years ago, 
a really solid biblical scholar that did some work, and he showed looking at that term, daddy is not the best translation. It's not the best word to use in reference to God and, and in the sense of prayer. So if you pray with that word, I am not being disrespectful. I'm not even saying you should not do that. What I'm saying is you can't force other people to use that or, or act like they don't have a close relationship with God if they're not using that term because the data, the historical work, just doesn't bear out that that's what Abba means here. Now, it's a term of reverence and a term of love and a term of God's presence and, and his kindness towards. All that sort of intimacy is there. I just don't think you have to use the word daddy there uh, in, in reference to God in prayer. So, Again, that may not be a big deal to you, but I know some people over the years, that has just really rubbed them the wrong way when, when they've heard that used in reference to God. So I wanted to give you some background there, set you free. Don't feel like you're not a spiritual person if you don't use that term when, when you're praying there. Verse 37, let's see what happens next. Verse 37. He came and he found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Every pastor's just favorite verse here. Like, could you not stay awake for one hour? Like, <laughs> you couldn't, couldn't, couldn't see and study God's word for one hour without falling asleep? So uh, I know it happens. I know. But it's just, it's so much fun as a pastor when you come to this verse. Like, you, you know, had, had just a little bit. You couldn't stay awake for one hour? So granted, you weren't with Jesus. <laughs> you're, you're, you're with me. Jesus hopefully speaking through me and through his word. Jesus is with us in this room. So uh, verse 38, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Oh, man, we feel that deeply, don't we? You think about Paul in Romans chapter 7, the good I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, those are the things I end up doing. Like, my, my spirit is willing. I want to do the things of the Lord. I, I want to stay awake in life. I want to be involved in prayer. I want to be involved in ministry. And yet, so often, I fall asleep, and, and I fall short. And I find that, that uh, just that agony, that internal agony. I've shared this with you before, but it's such a great quote. Uh, there's an author that talks about when you are a follower of Jesus, you have Jesus in your heart and Grandpa in your bones. Uh, so being a Christian means I have Jesus in my heart, like my, my spirit is willing, Lord, I want to follow you, I want to know you, but I got a lot of grandpa on my bones, like I've got a lot of things to overcome from, from my past, I've got a lot of weakness in my flesh, and Jesus is saying here, stay awake, stay awake, because, because there's something that's about to happen that if you catch the significance of it, it's going to drive you forward in your spiritual life. Verse 39, I think is where we're at now. Again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time. Mark loves threes. Like, he just repeats things in threes all throughout the gospel. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, I know it'd be easy to lose this in the Gospel of Mark, but fascinatingly, those are the last words that Jesus ever speaks to the disciples in the Gospel of Mark, where he says, rise, let us be going. My betrayer is at hand. 
I don't want to overinterpret this, so I want to be careful, but I think it's significant here. That word for rise, let us be going, that is the same word that is used in reference to Jesus' resurrection. And I think, I can't prove this, but I think he's putting something in there for them saying, get up from this place of agony, get up from this place, we're going to move forward. We're going to go through the cross but the resurrection is coming. That let us be going, that's the same language that's used after the resurrection where the disciples are called to go into Galilee and continue this mission that Jesus has put in front of them. But first, they have to go through the cross. Then from the cross to the resurrection. Then from the resurrection to all this mission that's in front of them. If you're taking notes this morning, I want to put two things in front of you. There's, there's two points that I want us to draw out of these. And we need to get them in the right order because if we don't get them in the right order, we miss how Christianity works. Two points I want to put in front of you. Number one is I want us to see our need for Jesus' sacrifice. Because remember, this story is leading to the cross. So number one this morning is that we would see our need for Jesus' sacrifice. We would see our need for his salvation and we would see our need that he would give us strength to go through the temptations that we face in, in life. So first, we want to see how this whole story is leading us to the cross. Because, here's what we know. Here's what we know. Every person on earth, every person on earth, deals with two problems that they can't overcome on their own. Sin and death. You can be a religious person or not a religious person. You can like church or hate church. Every person on earth deals with two problems that no matter how hard you try, you're never going to fix those on your own. We're all broken by sin, and we all face death. And the beauty of the gospel is that Jesus dealt with both of those. Through the cross, he took our sin. Through the resurrection, he overcame the power of death. Our hope is in him. The disciples in this story are not the heroes. <laughs> like, they're not the people we're looking to to guide us forward. But you know what the disciples are? They're a really good picture of me and you. They're a really good picture of how we struggle, that in the most important moments of life, we fall asleep or we get distracted or we get carried away or our pride gets the most of us. And this story says Jesus is going to the cross and because of the cross, your sin your weakness, your brokenness, your death, he is taking care of that. The most important thing you could see this morning is that Jesus died for you to take your sin and he rose again to destroy the power of death. Hold on to that, hold on to that. And at the same time, because of the cross, he provides strength as we face temptations and difficulties in life. He provides strength through the fact that he prays for us, that he has given us his word, he's given us his Holy Spirit, He's given us people around us to keep us strong. Jesus has provided the strength we need to continue to endure, continue to follow after him. So the first thing you want to say this morning, the first point we want to make, is we need from this story to see our need for Jesus' sacrifice, the salvation he provides for you, and the strength that he gives you to keep going. Number two, so our need for Jesus' sacrifice. Number two is our need for Jesus' example that Jesus shows us what it is to pray when you face pain and silence and difficulty and frustration in life. So first I turn to Jesus and I find salvation and strength. Then I turn to Jesus because I've trusted in him and I find an example 
for how do I pray when God gives me a microwave and I really wanted a baby? How do I pray when God heals everybody else's friend and family and marriage and God doesn't do that in my situation? How do I pray when I prayed over and over and over for a child that's going the wrong direction and they just keep going that direction? How do I keep praying when God seems silent or doesn't seem to be responding in the way that we think he should pray, we think he should to our prayers? How do I do that? Abba Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Okay, before we go to the next slide, we're going to take that, and I want to give you five steps that you find throughout the Bible for prayer. But when you're in the middle of a hard, painful situation, you're not looking for a magic formula. You're not looking for a math formula. So I'm going to give you these steps because I think they're so helpful. But don't think of these as like a special magic formula. This is just your pathway to keep going. Here's the steps. Here's the five points. And you can find this all throughout the Bible. You find it in the Old Testament in the Psalms. You find it in the New Testament of Paul's letters. You find it here in Jesus' example. So we are going to turn. We're going to cry. We're going to ask. We're going to trust. And then we're going to get up and keep going. And that pattern you find over and over and over. Some of the most beautiful places are places like Psalm chapter 13 or Psalm chapter 42 in the Old Testament. So what do I do? What do I do when life just hurts right now? What do I do when it feels like my faith is right on the edge of crumbling? What do I do when the people around me feel like they're at the breaking point? Maybe you're in a good spot this morning but you have friends and family around you who are just struggling, and, and, and they would struggle to say this out loud, but they're starting to doubt their faith. They're starting to doubt in the goodness of God. They're starting to doubt in the power of prayer. What do I do in those situations? Number one, and maybe the most difficult, is I have to choose to turn back toward the Lord because we know in those times of pain, what's the temptation? The temptation is to turn your back on the Lord. Say, forget it, I'm done with church. I'm done with prayer, I'm done with God, I'm done with faith, I'm done with all of it. I'm going to turn around and I'm going my own way. In that situation, let me remind you, I, I feel the depth of that. And I've had good friends who have made that exact decision and said, I'm done with church, I'm done with faith, I'm, I'm going the other direction. Let me gently remind you in that situation, if you do that, the pain doesn't go away. The brokenness doesn't go away everybody still has to figure out how they're going to deal with the pain and difficulty and brokenness of life. Those realities don't change if you choose to turn away from God and go the other direction. But it takes faith to turn back to the Lord and to say, I'm going to continue to point my face toward you. I'm going to continue to bow my knees before you. I'm going to continue to turn to you. And you cry. You even some, some translations say you complain. Like you just pour out your heart to the Lord. This is not fake emotion. This is not put on the church smile so you come to church and everybody thinks everything is okay. This is, no, I'm hurting. Like, life is not okay right now. I'm not going to pretend like it's okay. It hurts. And we cry out. We, we lay out our burdens and our pains and our difficulties before the Lord because he cares for us and because you have people around you who care for you. And then we ask. You don't back away from your prayer request. This isn't like, oh, don't pray for that. No, ask and keep on asking. 
Prayer is ongoing, specific. God, I want you to hear this, hear my heart, and how God begins to shape those prayers as we turn to him. And then we trust him. (laughs) This is when we get to the point that we say, God, I want this so badly. I want my family member to be healed. I want my kid to turn back. I need a job, whatever it is. God, I'm praying for a baby, whatever that might be. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Trying to get those words out of your mouth. Trying to get those words out of your heart. And we can say those words, but then we do, do I mean this? God, not my will. I know what I want. But I choose to trust you with my health. I choose to trust you with my family. I choose to trust you with my job. Not my will, but yours be done. And then you hear Jesus say, arise, let's go. We're going right forward. We're going to go through the cross to the resurrection right into eternity. Now, we have to be careful how we tell friends point number five, right? Because when somebody's in the middle of their mess and somebody's in the middle of their pain, in the middle of their hurt, and you tell them too quickly, hey, get up, we're moving forward, it can come across really calloused. It can come across as you're just saying, hey, put that pain in the past because we're going to move forward. Well, guess what? We're going to move forward, but it's probably still going to hurt. We're going to move forward. Why? Because of this point on the screen next. Why are we going to arise and move forward? Because what we see now is not the end of the story. What we see in the Garden of Gethsemane is not the end of the story. What you are experiencing right now in your family, in your job, in your life situation, it's not the end of the story. We don't often think of God as as a collector. I know many of you collect coins and stamps, and uh, some of you kids in the room collect some really strange things, but really cool at the same point, so... Uh, some of the befuddles us as parents, like why you collect those things, but you love, you love to do it, which is awesome. We don't think about God as a collector. But the book of Psalms in the Old Testament tells us that God collects two things. He collects the tears of his people, and he collects the prayers of his people. Every tear you cry, every prayer you send out to the Lord, he collects those because they're precious to him, because you in a moment of hurt are choosing to trust him and cry out to him, and he bottles those up, and then the book of Revelation says that when he will make all things right at the end of time, he's going to pour out all of those tears, all of those prayers as a part of making everything right, which means that in the moment right now, what you want so badly in prayer, it may not happen, but one day God will make all things right. One day we will see his redemption and his justice and his goodness poured out. He collects our tears, he collects our prayers, and he reminds us what we see now is not the end of the story. So what do we do right now? We turn to him, we cry, sometimes a lot, we keep on asking, we trust him, not not my will, God, but yours be done, and then we get up and we keep going on the mission that he's given us through the cross, through the resurrection, into eternity. Here's how we're going to wrap up the service today. It would be very bad if I gave you five points about prayer and we didn't pray. So we're going to pray, Emmaus, okay? We're going to pray. After I pray for you, here in just a moment, after I pray for you, for all intents and purposes, 
That ends the service. You're dismissed. But can I call you to stay for times of prayer? Pray with your family around you. Come here to the front. If you just need time alone, just crying out to the Lord about something you're facing in life. Also, don't miss this. There are going to be prayer team members all around the room. The best thing you could do this morning might be, I just need to get up, and I just need to go to one of these folks around the room, and I just need to ask for prayer. I just need somebody to pray over me, somebody to encourage me. Whenever you're ready to leave, whenever you're ready to go, you feel free to be dismissed, go out to the lobby, hang out, spend time, have conversations. If you need to stay in here for a long time, we're going to stay right here with you. Trust the Lord, cry out to him, ask him for what you need, and then we're going to get up and we're going to go. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, thank you for Jesus' sacrifice for us. God, I pray that if there's somebody here this morning and they have been, they've been angry toward you, God. They have been frustrated with life. Maybe things like church and prayer just seem so distant and, and they just kind of grate at us at times. God, I pray that this morning you would provide hope and healing for people in this room. God, that there would be people this morning who would become a Christian this morning. They would trust in Jesus for the first time ever. God, to be able to know that he has taken their sin and their death, that they can find life and eternity through Jesus. And God, I pray that there would be families in this room that would pray together. Maybe, maybe for the first time in a long time that mom and dad would just take time praying together, that there would be friends in this room that would take time praying together. And God, I pray that if there are people who feel pressure to come into a room like this on Sunday morning and just put on a happy face and act like everything's okay when it's not okay, God, give them freedom over the next few minutes just to cry out to you in prayer, to go to someone and find that hope, find that support. Abba, Father, all things are possible with you. Remove this cup. Hear our prayers but not our will, but yours be done. Amen.